Monstrous Regiment by Terry Pratchett, performed by Stephen Briggs. Polly cut off her hair in front of the mirror, feeling slightly guilty about not feeling very guilty about doing so. It was supposed to be her crowning glory, and everyone said it was beautiful, but she generally wore it in a net when she was working. She'd always told herself it was wasted on her, Yet she was careful to see that the long golden coils all landed on the small sheet spread out for the purpose. If she would admit to any strong emotion at all at this time, it was sheer annoyance that a haircut was all she needed to pass for a young man. She didn't even need to bind up her bosom, which she'd heard was the normal practice. Nature had seen to it that she had barely any problems in this area. The effect that the scissors had was erratic, but it was no worse than other male haircuts here. It'd do. She did feel cold on the back of her neck, but that was only partly because of the loss of her long hair. It was also because of the stare. The Duchess watched her from above the bed. It was a poor woodcut, hand-coloured mostly in blue and red. It was of a plain middle-aged woman whose sagging chin and slightly bulging eyes gave the cynical the feeling that someone had put a large fish in a dress. But the artist had managed to capture something extra in that strange, blank expression. Some pictures had eyes that followed you round the room. This one looked right through you. It was a face you found in every home. In Borogravia, you grew up with the Duchess watching you. Polly knew her parents had one of the pictures in their room and knew also that when her mother was alive, she used to curtsy to it every night. She reached up and turned this picture around so that it faced the wall. A thought in her head said, No. It was overruled. She'd made up her mind. Then she dressed herself in her brother's clothes, tipped the contents of the sheet into a small bag that went into the bottom of her pack along with the spare clothes, put a note to her father on her bed, picked up the pack and climbed out of the window. At least, Polly climbed out of the window, but it was Oliver's feet that landed lightly on the ground. Dawn was just turning the dark world into monochrome when she slipped across the inn's yard. The Duchess watched her from the inn sign too. Her father had been a great loyalist, at least up to the death of her mother. The sign hadn't been repainted this year, and a random bird-dropping had given the Duchess a squint. Polly checked that the recruiting sergeant's cart was still in front of the bar, its bright banners now drab and heavy with last night's rain. By the look of that big fat sergeant, it would be hours before it was on the road again. She had plenty of time. He looked like a slow breakfaster. She let herself out of the door in the back wall and headed uphill. At the top, she turned back and looked at the waking town. Smoke was rising from a few chimneys, but since Polly was always the first to wake and she yelled the maids out of their beds, the inn was still sleeping. She knew that the widow Clambers had stayed overnight. It had been raining too hard for her to go home, according to Polly's father, and personally she hoped for his sake that she'd stay every night. The town had no shortage of widows for Nuggan's sake, and Olga Clambers was a warm-hearted lady who baked like a champion. His wife's long illness and Paul's long absence had taken a lot out of her father. 
Polly was glad some of it was put back. The old ladies who spent their days glowering from their windows might spy and peeve and mumble, but they had been doing that for too long. No one listened any more. She raised her gaze. Smoke and steam were already rising from the laundry of the girls' working school. The building hung over one end of the town like a threat, big and grey with tall, thin windows. It was always silent. When she was small, she'd been told that that was where the bad girls went. The nature of badness was not explained, and at the age of five, Polly had received the vague idea that it consisted of not going to bed when you were told. At the age of eight, she'd learned it was where you were lucky not to go for buying your brother a paint box. She turned her back and set off between the trees, which were full of birdsong. Forget you were ever Polly. Think, young male, that was the thing. Fart loudly and with self-satisfaction at a job well done. Walk like a puppet that had had a couple of random strings cut. Never hug anyone and, if you meet a friend, punch them. A few years working in the bar had provided plenty of observational material. No problem about not swinging her hips, at least. Nature had been pretty sparing there, too. And then there was the young male walk to master. At least women swung only their hips. Young men swung everything, from the shoulders down. You have to try to occupy a lot of space, she thought. It makes you look bigger, like a tomcat fluffing his tail. She'd seen it a lot in the inn. The boys tried to walk big in self-defence against all those other big boys out there. I'm bad, I'm fierce, I'm cool. I'd like a pint of shandy and me man wants me home by nine. Let's see now. Arms out from the body as though holding a couple of bags of flour. Check. Shoulders swaying as though she was elbowing her way through a crowd. Check. Hands slightly bunched and making rhythmical circling motions as though turning two independent handles attached to the waist. Check. Legs moving forward loosely and ape-like. Check. It worked fine for a few yards until she got something wrong and the resultant muscular confusion somersaulted her into a hollybush. After that, she gave up. The thunderstorm came back as she hurried along the trail. Sometimes one would hang around the mountains for days, but at least up here the path wasn't a river of mud, and the trees still had enough leaves to give her some protection. There was no time to wait out the weather anyway. She had a long way to go. The recruiting party would cross at the ferry, but Polly was known to all the ferrymen by sight, and the guard would want to see her permit to travel, which Oliver Perks certainly didn't have. So that meant a long diversion all the way to the Troll Bridge at Tubes. To the Trolls, all humans looked alike, and any piece of paper would do as a permit, since they didn't read. Then she could walk down through the pine forests to Plune. The cart would have to stop there for the night, but the place was one of those nowhere villages that existed only in order to avoid the embarrassment of having any large empty spaces on the map. It was just what she wanted. No one knew her in Plune. No one ever went there. It was a dump. It was, in fact, just the place she needed. The recruiting party would stop there and she could enlist. She was pretty certain the big fat sergeant and his greasy little corporal wouldn't notice the girl who'd served them last night. She was not, as they said, conventionally beautiful. The corporal had tried to pinch her bottom, 
but probably out of habits like swatting a fly, and there was not enough for a big pinch at that. She sat on the hill above the ferry and had a late breakfast of cold potato and sausage while she watched the carts cross over. No one was marching behind it. No lads had been recruited back in Munns this time. People had kept away. Too many young men had left over the last few years and not enough had come back. And of the ones who'd come back, sometimes not enough of each man had come back. The corporal could bang his drum all he liked. Munns was running out of sons almost as fast as it accumulated widows. The afternoon hung heavy and humid and a yellow pine warbler followed her from bush to bush. Last night's mud was steaming when Polly reached the Troll Bridge, which crossed the river in a narrow gorge. It was a thin, graceful affair, put together, it was said, with no mortar at all, and it was said that the weight of the bridge anchored it ever more deeply into the rock on either side. It was said to be a wonder of the world, except that very few people around here ever wondered much about anything, and were barely aware of the world. It cost one penny to cross, or one hundred gold pieces, if you had a billy goat. Trolls might not be quick thinkers, but they don't forget in a hurry either. Halfway across, Polly peered over the parapet and saw the cart far, far below, working its way along the narrow road just above the white water. The afternoon's journey was downhill all the way, through dark pines on this side of the gorge. She didn't hurry, and, towards sunset, she spotted the inn. The cart had already arrived, but by the looks of it, the recruiting sergeant had not even bothered to make an effort. There was no drum banging like there had been last night, no cries of, roll up my young shavers, it's a great life in the ins and outs. There was always a war. Usually they were border disputes, the national equivalent of complaining that the neighbour was letting their hedge grow too long. Sometimes they were bigger. Borogravia was a peace-loving country in the midst of treacherous, devious, warlike enemies. They had to be treacherous, devious and warlike, otherwise we wouldn't be fighting them, eh? There was always a war. Polly's father had been in the army before he took over the Duchess from Polly's grandfather. He didn't talk about it much. He'd brought his sword back with him, but instead of hanging it over the fireplace... He used it to poke the fire. Sometimes old friends would turn up and, when the bars were shut for the night, they'd gather around the fire and drink and sing. The young Polly found excuses to stay up and listen to the songs they sang, but that had stopped when she'd got into trouble for using one of the more interesting words in front of her mother. Now she was older and served the beer, it was presumably assumed that she knew the words or would find out what they meant soon enough. Besides... Her mother had gone where bad words would no longer offend, and, in theory, never got said. The songs had been part of her childhood. She knew all the words of The World Turned Upside Down, and The Devil Shall Be My Sergeant, and Johnny Has Gone For A Soldier, and The Girl I Left Behind Me. And, after the drink had been flowing for a while, she'd memorised Colonel Krapsky and I Wish I'd Never Kissed Her. And then, of course, there had been sweet Polly Oliver. Her father used to sing it when she was small and fretful or sad, and she'd laughed to hear it simply because it had a name in it. She was word-perfect on the words before she'd known what most of them meant. And now... Polly pushed open the door. 
The recruiting sergeant and his corporal looked up from the stained table where they were sitting, beer mugs halfway to their lips. She took a deep breath, marched over, and made an attempt at saluting. What do you want, kid? growled the corporal. Uh, want to join up, sir? The sergeant turned to Polly and grinned, which made his scars move oddly and caused a tremor to shake all his chins. The word fat could not honestly be applied to him, not when the word gross was lumbering forward to catch your attention. He was one of those people who didn't have a waist. He had an equator. He had gravity. If he fell over in any direction, he would rock. Sun and drink had burned his face red. Small, dark eyes twinkled in the redness like the sparkle on the edge of a knife. Beside him, on the table, were a couple of old-fashioned cutlasses, weapons that had more in common with a meat cleaver than a sword. "'Just like that?' he said. "'Yes, sir.' "'Really?' "'Yes, sir.' "'You don't want us to get you stinking drunk first? It's traditional, you know.' "'No, sir.' I haven't told you about the wonderful opportunities for advancement and good fortune, have I? No, sir. Did I mention how the spanking red uniform will mean you'll have to beat the girls off with a stick? Don't think so, sir. For the grub? Every meal's a banquet when you march along with us. The sergeant smacked his belly, which caused tremors in outlying regions. I'm the living proof. Yes, sir. No, sir. I just want to join up to fight for my country and the honour of the Duchess, sir. You do? said the corporal, incredulously, but the sergeant appeared not to hear this. He looked Polly up and down, and Polly got the definite impression that the man was neither as drunk nor as stupid as he looked. Upon my oath, Corporal Strappy, it seems what we've got ourselves here is nothing less than a good old-fashioned patriot, he said, his eyes searching Polly's face. Well, you've come to the right place, my lad. He pulled a sheaf of papers toward him with an air of bustle. You know who we are? The Tenth Foot, sir. Light infantry, sir. Known as the ins and outs, sir, said Polly, relief bubbling through her. She'd clearly passed some sort of test. Right, lad. The jolly old cheesemongers. Finest regiment there is in the finest army in the world. Keen to join then, are you? Keen as mustard, sir, said Polly, aware of the corporal's suspicious eyes on her. Good lad. The sergeant unscrewed the top from a bottle of ink and dipped a nib pen in it. His hand hovered over the paperwork. Name, lad, he said. Oliver, sir. Oliver Perks, said Polly. Age? Seventeen come Sunday, sir. You're right, said the sergeant. You're seventeen and I'm the Grand Duchess Anagovia. What are you running away from, eh? Got a young lady in the family way? He'd have to have had help, said the corporal, grinning unpleasantly. He squeaks like a little lad. Polly realised she was starting to blush. But then, young Oliver would blush too, wouldn't he? It was very easy to make a boy blush. Polly could do it just by staring. Don't matter anyway, said the sergeant. You make your mark on this here document and kiss the Duchess and you're my little lad, you understand. My name is Sergeant Jackram. I will be your mother and your father, and Corporal Strappy here will be just like your big brother. And life will be steak and bacon every day, and anyone who wants to drag you away will have to drag me away too, because I'll be holding on to your collar. And you might well be thinking there's no one that can drag that much, Mr. Perks. A thick thumb jabbed at the paper, 
Just there, right? Polly picked up the pen and signed. What's that? said the corporal. My signature, said Polly. She heard the door open behind her and spun around. Several young men, she corrected herself, several other young men had clattered into the bar and were looking around warily. You can read and write too, said the sergeant, glancing up at them and then back to her. Yeah, I see. A nice round hand too. Officer material you are. Give him the shilling, corporal, and a picture, of course. Right, sergeant, said Corporal Strappy, holding up a picture frame on a handle, like a looking-glass. Pucker up, Private Parts. It's perk, sir, said Polly. Yeah, right. Now kiss the Duchess. It was not a good copy of the famous picture. The painting behind the glass was faded, and something, some kind of moss or something, was growing on the inside of the cracked glass itself. Polly let her lips brush it while holding her breath. "'Ha!' said Strappy, and pressed something into her hand. "'What's this?' said Polly, looking at the small square of paper. "'And I owe you. Bit short of shillings right now,' said the sergeant, while Strappy smirked. "'But the innkeeper'll stand you a pint of ale, courtesy of her grace.' He turned and looked up at the newcomers. "'Well, it never rains, but it pours. You boys here to join up too?' My word, and we didn't even have to bang the drum. It must be Corporal Strappy's amazing charisma. Step up, don't be shy. Who's the next likely lad? Polly looked at the next recruits with a horror that she hoped she was concealing. She hadn't really noticed him in the gloom because he was wearing black. Not cool, styled black, but a dusty black, the kind of suit a person got buried in. By the look of it, that person had been him. There were cobwebs all over it. The boy himself had stitches across his forehead. Your name, lad? said Jackram. Egorthar. Jackram counted the stitches. You know, I had a feeling it was going to be, he said. And I see you're eighteen. Awake! Oh, gods! Commander Samuel Vimes put his hands over his eyes. "'I beg your pardon, your, your grace,' said the Ankh-Morpork consul to Slovenia. "'Are you ill, your grace?' "'What's your name again, young man?' said Vimes. "'I'm sorry, but I've been travelling for two weeks and not getting a lot of sleep, "'and I've spent all day being introduced to people with difficult names. "'That's bad for the brain.' "'It's Clarence, your grace. Clarence Chinny.' "'Chinny,' said Vimes, and Clarence read everything in his expression." "'I'm afraid so, sir,' he said. "'Were you a good fighter at school?' said Vimes. "'No, your grace, but no one could beat me over the one-hundred-yard dash.' Vimes laughed. "'Well, Clarence, any national anthem that starts with awake is going to lead to trouble. "'They didn't teach you this at the patrician's office?' "'Er, uh, no, your grace,' said Chinny. "'Well, you'll find out. Carry on, then.' Yes, sir, Chinny cleared his throat. The Boragravian National Anthem, he announced for the second time. Awake, sorry, your grace, ye sons of the motherland, taste no more the wine of the sour apples, woodsmen grasp your choppers, farmers slaughter with the tool formerly used for lifting beets the foe, 
frustrate the endless wiles of our enemies, we into the darkness march singing against the whole world in arms coming, but see the golden light upon the mountain tops. The new day is a great big fish. Uh, Vim said, that last bit, that is a literal translation, Your Grace, said Clarence nervously. It means something like an amazing opportunity or, or a glittering prize, Your Grace. When we're not in public, Clarence, sir will do. Your Grace is just to impress the natives. Vimes slumped back in his uncomfortable chair, chin in his hand, and then winced. Two thousand three hundred miles, he said, shifting his position, and it's freezing on a broomstick, however low they fly. And then the barge, and then the coach. He winced again. I read your report. Do you think it's possible for an entire nation to be insane? Clarence swallowed. He'd been told that he was talking to the second most powerful man in Ankh-Morpork, even if the man himself acted as though he was ignorant of the fact. His desk in this chilly tower room was rickety. It had belonged to the head janitor of the Connect garrison until yesterday. Paperwork cluttered its scarred surface and was stacked in piles behind Vimes's chair. Vimes himself did not look to Clarence like a duke. He looked like a watchman, which, in fact, Clarence understood he was. This offended Clarence Chinney. People at the top should look as though they belonged there. That's a very interesting question, sir, he said. You mean the people? Not the people, the nation, said Vimes. Borra Gravier looks off its head to me from what I've read. I expect the people just do the best they can and get on with raising their kids, which, I might say, I'd rather be doing right now too. Look, you know what I mean. You take a bunch of people who don't seem any different from you and me, but when you add them all together, you get this sort of huge raving maniac with national borders and an anthem. It's a fascinating idea, sir, said Clarence diplomatically. Vimes looked around the room. The walls were bare stone. The windows were narrow. It was damn cold even on a sunny day. All that bad food and that bumping about and sleeping on bad beds and all that travelling in the dark, too, on dwarf barges and their secret canals under the mountains. The gods alone knew what intricate diplomacy Lord Vetinari had pulled off to get that, although the low king owed Vimes a few favours. All of that for this cold castle over this cold river between these stupid countries with their stupid war. He knew what he wanted to do. If they'd been people scuffling in the gutter, he'd have known what to do. He'd have banged their heads together and maybe shoved them in the cells overnight. But you couldn't bang countries together. Vimes picked up some paperwork, fiddled with it and threw it down again. To hell with this, he said. What's happening out there? I understand there are a few pockets of resistance in some of the more inaccessible areas of the keep, but they are being dealt with. For all practical purposes, the keep is in our hands. That was a, a clever ruse of yours, your... Uh, sir. Vimes sighed. No, Clarence, it was a dull old ruse. It should not be possible to get men into a fortress dressed as washerwomen. Three of them had moustaches, for goodness sake. The... Borogravians are rather old-fashioned about things like that, sir. On that subject, we appear to have zombies in the lower crypts. 
dreadful things, a lot of high-ranking Boragravian military men were interred down there over the centuries, apparently. Really? What are they doing now? Clarence raised his eyebrows. Lurching, sir, I think. Groaning. Uh, zombie things. Something seems to have stirred them up. Us, probably, said Vimes. He got up, strode across the room, and pulled open the big heavy door. Reg, he yelled. After a moment, another watchman appeared and saluted. He was grey-faced, and Clarence couldn't help noticing when the man saluted that the hand and fingers were held together with stitching. "'Have you met Constable Shoe, Clarence?' said Vimes cheerfully. "'One of my staff. Been dead for more than thirty years and loves every minute of it, eh, Reg?' "'Right, Mr Vimes,' said Reg, grinning and revealing a lot of brown teeth. "'Some fellow countryman of yours down in the cellar, Reg,' said Vimes. "'Oh, dear. Lurching, are they?' "'Fraid so, Reg.' "'I shall go and have a word with them,' said Reg. He saluted again and marched out with a hint of a lurch. "'Fellow countryman, he's uh, from here,' said Chinny, who had gone quite pale. "'Oh, no, no. The undiscovered country,' said Vimes. "'He's dead. However, credit where it's due, he hasn't let that stop him. "'You didn't know we have a zombie in the watch, Clarence?' "'Er... Uh, "'No, sir, I haven't been back to the city in five years,' he swallowed. "'I gather things have changed.' "'Horribly so, in Clarence Chinney's opinion. "'Being consul to Slovenia had been an easy job, "'which left him a lot of time to get on with his business. "'And then the big semaphore towers marched through all along the valley, "'and suddenly Ankh-Morpork was an hour away. "'Before the clacks, a letter from Ankh-Morpork "'would take more than two weeks to get to him and so no one worried if he took a day or two to answer it. Now people expect a reply overnight. He'd been quite glad when Borogravia had destroyed several of those wretched towers, and then all hell had been let loose. "'We've got all sorts in the watch,' said Vimes, "'and we bloody well need them now, Clarence, with Slovenians and Borogravians scrapping in the streets over some damned quarrel that began a thousand years ago. It's worse than dwarfs and trolls.' all because someone's great to the power of umpteen grandmother slapped the face of someone's great ditto uncle. Borogravia and Slovenia can't even agree on a border. They chose the river and that changes course every spring. Suddenly the Klax Towers are now on Borogravian soil. Or mud, anyway. So the idiots burn them down for religious reasons. Ah, uh, there is more to it than that, sir, said Chinny. Yes, I know. I read the history. The annual scrap with Slovenia is just a local derby. Borogravia fights everybody. Why? National pride, sir. What in? There's nothing there. There's some tallow mines and they're not bad farmers, but there's no great architecture, no big libraries, no famous composers, no very high mountains, no wonderful views. All you can say about the place is that it isn't anywhere else. What's so special about Borogravia? I suppose... Suppose it's special because it's theirs. And, of course, there's Nuggan, sir, their god. I've bought you a copy of the Book of Nuggan. I looked through one back in the city, Chinny, said Vimes. Seemed pretty stu... That wouldn't have been our recent edition, sir, and I suspect it wouldn't be uh, very current that far from here. This one is more up-to-date, said Chinny, putting a small but thick book on the desk. Up-to-date? What do you mean, up-to-date? said Vimes, looking puzzled. Holy writ gets written. Do this, don't do that. 
No coveting your neighbour's ox. Um, Nuggan doesn't just leave it at that, sir. He, um, updates things. Mostly the abominations, to be frank. Vimes took the new copy. It was noticeably thicker than the one he'd brought with him. It's what they call a living testament, Chinny explained. They, well, I, I suppose you could say they die if they're taken out of Borogravia. They no longer get added to. The latest abominations are, are at the end, sir, he said helpfully. This is a holy book with an appendix. Exactly, sir. In a ring binder? Quite so, sir. People put blank pages in and the abominations turn up. You mean magically? I suppose I mean religiously, sir. Vimes opened a page at random. Chocolate, he said. He doesn't like chocolate. Yes, sir, that's an abomination. Garlic? Well, I don't much like it either, so fair enough. Cats? Oh, yes, he really doesn't like cats, sir. Dwarfs? It says here, the dwarfish race which worships gold are an abomination unto Nuggan. He must be mad. What happened? Oh, the dwarfs that were here sealed their minds and vanished, your guess. I bet they did. They know trouble when they see it, said Vimes. He let your grace pass this time. Chinny clearly derived some satisfaction from talking to a duke. He leafed through the pages and stopped. The colour blue? Correct, sir. What's abominable about the colour blue? It's just a colour. The sky is blue. Yes, sir. Devout Nugganites try not to look at it these days. Um... Chinny had been trained as a diplomat, some things he didn't like to say directly. Nuggan, sir, um, is rather... Tetchy, he managed. Tetchy, said Vimes. A tetchy god? What, he complains about the noise their kids make? Objects to loud music after 9pm? Um, we get the Ankh-Morpork times here, sir, eventually, and, uh... I'd say um, that Nuggan is very much like uh, the kind of people who write to its letter column. You know, sir, the kind who sign their letters disgusted with Ankh-Morpork. Oh, you mean he really is mad, said Vimes. Oh, I'd never mean anything like that, sir, said Chinny hurriedly. What do the priests do about this? Not a lot, sir. I think they quietly ignore some of the more... Um, extreme abominations. You mean, Nuggan objects to the dwarfs, cats and colour blue, and there are more insane commandments? Chinny coughed politely. All right, then, growled Vimes. More extreme commandments? Oysters, sir. He doesn't like them. But that's not a problem, because no one there has ever seen an oyster. Oh, and babies. He abominated them, too. I take it people still make them here. Oh, yes, you're... Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, sir. But they feel guilty about it. Barking dogs, that was another one. Shirts with six buttons, too. And cheese. Um, people just sort of, um, avoid the trickier ones. Even the priests seem to have given up trying to explain them. Yeah, I think I can see why. So, what we have here is a country that tries to run itself on the commandments of a god who the people feel may be wearing his underpants on his head. Has he abominated underpants? 
No, sir, Chinny sighed, but it's probably only a matter of time. So how do they manage? These days, people mostly pray to the Duchess Anagovia. You see icons of her in every house. They call her the Little Mother. Ah, yes, the Duchess. Can I get to see her? Oh, no one sees her, sir. No one except her servants has seen her for more than thirty years. To be honest, sir, she's probably dead. Only probably. No one really knows. The official story is that she's in mourning. It's rather sad, sir. The young duke died a week after they got married, gored by a wild pig during a hunt, I believe. She went into mourning at the old castle at Prince Marmaduke Piotr Albert Hans Josef Bernhard Wilhelmsberg, and hasn't appeared in public since. The official portrait was painted when she was about forty, I believe. No children? No, sir. On her death the line is extinct. And they pray to her like a god. Chinny sighed. I did put this in my briefing notes, sir. The royal family in Boragravia have always had a quasi-religious status, you see. They're the head of the church, and the peasants, at least, pray to them in the hope that they'll put in a good word with Nuggan. They're like living saints, celestial intermediaries. To be honest, that's how these countries work in any case. If you want something done, you have to know the right people. And I suppose it's easier to pray to some picture than to a god you can't see. Vimes sat looking at the consul for some time. When he next spoke, he frightened the man to his boots. Hode inherit, he said. Sir? Just following the monarchy, Mr. Chinney. If the Duchess isn't on the throne, who should be? Um, it's incredibly complex, sir, because of the intermarriages and the various legal systems, which, for example... Who's the smart money on, Mr. Chinney? said Vimes wearily. Um, Prince Heinrich of Slovenia. To Chinny's astonishment, Vimes laughed. And he's wondering how auntie's getting on, I expect. I met him this morning, didn't I? Can't say I took to him. But he is a friend of Ank Morpork, said Chinny reproachfully. That was in my report. Educated, very interested in the clacks, got great plans for his country... They used to be nugganatic in Slovenia, but he's banned the religion, and frankly, hardly anyone objected. He wants Slovenia to move forward. He admires Ank Morpork very much. Yes, I know. He sounds almost as insane as Nuggan, said Vimes. OK, so what we've probably got is an elaborate charade to keep Heinrich out. How's this place governed? There isn't much a bit of tax collecting, and that's about all. We think some of the senior court officials just drift on as if the Duchess is alive. The only thing that really works is the army. All right. How about coppers? Everyone needs coppers. At least they have their feet on the ground. I believe informal citizens' committees enforce nugganatic law, said Chinny. Oh, gods. Prodnoses, curtain twitchers and vigilantes, said Vimes. He stood up and peered out through the narrow window at the plain below. It was night-time. Cooking fires in the enemy camp made demonic constellations in the darkness. "'Did they tell you why I've been sent here, Clarence?' he said. "'No, sir. My instructions were that you would, um, oversee things. 
Prince Heinrich is not very happy about it. Oh, well, the interests of Ankh Morpork are the interests of all money love. <laughs> Oops, sorry, all freedom loving people everywhere, said Vimes. We can't have a country that turns back our mail coaches and keeps cutting down the Klax Towers. That's expensive. They're cutting the continent in half. They're the pinch in the hourglass. I'm to bring things to a satisfactory conclusion. And frankly, Clarence, I'm wondering if it's even worth attacking Borogravia. It'll be cheaper to sit here and wait for it to explode. Although I notice... Where was that report? Oh, yeah. It will starve first. Uh, regrettably so, sir. Igor stood mutely in front of the recruiting table. Don't often see you people these days, said Jackram. Yeah, run out of fresh brains, have you? said the corporal nastily. Now then, corporal, no call for that, said the sergeant, leaning back in his creaking chair. There's plenty of lads out there walking around on legs they wouldn't still have if there hadn't been a friendly Igor around. Hey, Igor? Yeah. Well, I heard about people waking up and finding their friendly Igor had whipped out their brains in the middle of the night and buggered off to flog em, said the corporal, glaring at Igor. I promise you, your brain is entirely safe from me, corporal, said Igor. Polly started to laugh and stopped when she realised that absolutely no one else was doing so. Yeah, well, I met a sergeant who said an Igor put a man's legs on backwards, said Corporal Strappy. What good's that to a soldier, eh? A good advance and retreat at the same time, said Igor levelly. Sergeant, I know all the stories, and they are nothing but vile calumnies. I seek only to serve my country. I do not want trouble. Right, said the sergeant. Nor do we. Make your mark, and you've got to promise not to mess about with Corporal Strappy's brain, right? Another signature? My word, I can see we've got ourselves a bleeding college of recruits today. Give him his cardboard shilling, Corporal. Thank you, said Eagle. And I would like to give the picture a wipe if it's all the same to you. He produced a small cloth. Wipe it, said Strappy. Is that a lad, Sergeant? What do you want to wipe it for, mister, said Jackram. To remove the invisible demons, said Igor. I can't see any invis... Strappy began, and stopped. Just let him, all right, said Jackram. It's one of their funny little ways. Don't seem right, muttered Strappy. Practically treason. Can't see why it'd be wrong just to give the old girl a wash, said the sergeant shortly. Next. Oh. After carefully wiping the stained picture and giving it a perfunctory peck, Igor came and stood next to Polly, giving her a sheepish grin. But she was watching the next recruit. He was short and quite slim, which was fairly usual in a country where it was rare to get enough food to make you fat. But he dressed in black and expensively, like an aristocrat. He even had a sword. The sergeant was, therefore, looking worried. Clearly, a man could get into trouble, talking wrong to a knob who might have important friends. "'You sure you come to the right place, sir?' he said. "'Yes, Sergeant, I wish to enlist.' Sergeant Jackram shifted uneasily. "'Yes, sir, but I'm sure a gentleman like you. Are you going to enlist me or not, Sergeant?' "'Not usual for a gentleman to enlist as a common soldier, sir,' mumbled the sergeant. "'What you mean, Sergeant, is, is anyone after me? Is there a price on my head? And the answer is no.' "'How about a mob with pitchforks?' 
said Corporal Strappy. He's a bloody vampire, Sarge. Anyone can see that. He's a black ribboner. Look, he's got the badge. Which says not one drop, said the young man calmly. Not one drop of human blood, Sergeant. A prohibition I have accepted for almost two years, thanks to the League of Temperance. Of course, if you have a personal objection, Sergeant, you need only give it to me in writing. Which was quite a clever thing to say, Polly thought. Those clothes cost serious money. Most of the vampire families were highly knobby. You never knew who was connected to who. Not just to who, in fact, but to whom. Whom's were likely to be far more trouble than your common everyday who. The sergeant was looking down a mile of rough road. "'Got to move with the times, Corporal,' he said, deciding not to go there. "'And we certainly need the men.' "'Yeah, but supposing he wants to suck all my blood out in the middle of the night,' said Strappy. "'Well, he'll just have to wait until Private Eagle's finished looking for your brain, won't he?' snapped the sergeant. "'Sign here, mister.' The pen scratched on the paper. After a minute or two, the vampire turned the paper over and continued writing on the other side. Vampires had long names. "'But you can call me Maladict,' he said, dropping the pen back in the inkwell. "'Thank you very much, I must say, sir. Uh, private. Give him the shilling, Corporal. Good job it's not a silver one, eh?' <laughs> "'Yes,' said Maladict. "'It is.' "'Next,' said the sergeant. Polly watched as a farm boy, breeches held up with string, shuffled in front of the table and looked at the quill pen with the resentful perplexity of those confronted with new technology. She turned back to the bar. The landlord glared at her in the manner of bad landlords everywhere. As her father always said, if you kept an inn, you either liked people or went mad. Oddly enough, some of the mad ones were the best at looking after their beer, but by the smell of the place, this wasn't one of those. She leaned on the bar. "'Point, please,' she said, and watched glumly as the man gave a scowl of acknowledgement and turned to the big barrels. It'll be sour, she knew, with the slop bucket under the tap tipped back in every night and the spigots not put back and, yes, it was going to be served in a leather tankard that had probably never been washed. A couple of new recruits were already knocking back their pints, though, with every audible sign of enjoyment. But this was plune, after all. Anything that made you forget you were there was probably worth drinking. One of them said, "'Lovely pint, this, eh?' And the boy next to him belched and said, "'Best I've tasted, yeah!' Polly sniffed at the tankard. The contents smelled like something she wouldn't feed to pigs. She took a sip and completely changed her opinion. She would feed it to pigs. "'Those lads have never tasted beer before,' she told herself. "'It's like Dad said.' Out in the country there are lads who join up for an uninhabited pair of breeches. And they'll drink this muck and pretend to enjoy it like men. Hey, up, we supped some stuff last night, eh, lads? And then next thing... Oh, Lord, that reminded her. What would the privy be like here? The men's one out in the yard back at home was bad enough. Polly sloshed two big pails of water into it every morning while trying not to breathe... There was weird green moss growing on the slate floor, and the Duchess was a good inn. It had customers who took their boots off before going to bed. She narrowed her eyes. This stupid fool in front of her, a man making one long eyebrow do the work of two, was serving them slops and foul vinegar just before they marched off to war.
This beer, said Igor on her right, tastes of horth-pith. Polly stood back. Even in a bar like this, that was killing talk. Oh, you'd know, would you? said the barman, looming over the boy. Drunk horse-piss, have you? Yes, said Igor. The barman stuck a fist in front of Igor's face. Now you listen to me, you lisping little... A slim black arm appeared with amazing speed, and a pale hand caught the man's wrist. The one eyebrow contorted in sudden agony. Now it's like this, said Maledict calmly. We're soldiers of the Duchess, agreed. Just say arg. He must have squeezed. The man groaned. Thank you. And you're serving up as beer a liquid best described as foul water, Maledict went on in the same level conversational tone. I, of course, don't drink horse piss, but I have a highly developed sense of smell, and really would prefer not to list aloud the things I can smell in this murk. So we'll just say rat droppings and leave it at that, shall we? Just whimper. Good man. At the end of the bar, one of the new recruits threw up. Maledict nodded with satisfaction. The barman's fingers had gone white. "'Incapacitating a soldier of her grace in wartime is a treasonable offence,' he said. He leaned forward. "'Punishable, of course, by... death.' Maledict pronounced the word with a certain delight. "'However, if there happened to be another barrel of beer around the place, you know, good stuff, the stuff you'd keep for your friends, if you had any friends, then I'm sure we could forget this little incident.' Now I'm going to let go of your wrist. I can tell by your eyebrow that you are a thinker. And if you're thinking of rushing back in here with a big stick, I'd like you to think about this instead. I'd like you to think about this black ribbon I'm wearing. Know what it means, do you? The barman winced and mumbled, Temperance League? Right. Well done, said Maledict. And one more thought for you, if you've got room. I've only taken a pledge not to drink human blood. It doesn't mean I can't kick you in the fork so hard you suddenly go deaf. He released his grip. The barman slowly straightened up. Under the bar he would have a short wooden club, Bolly knew. Every bar had one. Even her father had one. It was a great help, he said, in times of worry and confusion. She saw the fingers of the usable hand twitch. Don't, she said. I think he means it. The barman relaxed. Bit of a misunderstanding there, gents, he mumbled. Got the wrong barrel in. No offence meant. He shuffled off, his hand almost visibly throbbing. I only said it was horth-pith, said Igor. He won't cause trouble, said Polly to Maledict. He'll be your friend from now on. He's worked out he can't beat you, so he's going to be your best mate. Maledict subjected her to a thoughtful stare. I know that, he said. How do you? I used to work in an inn, said Polly, feeling her heart begin to beat faster, as it always did when the lies lined up. You learn to read people. What did you do in the inn? Barman. There is another inn in this hole, is there? Oh, no, I'm not from round here. Polly groaned at the sound of her own voice and waited for the question... Then why come here to join up? It didn't come. 
Instead, Maledict just shrugged and said, I shouldn't think anyone is from around here. A couple more new recruits arrived at the bar. They had the same look, sheepish, a bit defiant, in clothes that didn't fit very well. Eyebrow reappeared with a small keg, which he laid reverentially on a stand and gently tapped. He pulled a genuine pewter tankard from under the bar, filled it, and timorously proffered it to Maledict. Igor, said the vampire, waving it away. I'll stick with the horse, Pith, if it's all the same to you, said Igor. He looked around the sudden silence. Look, I, I never said I didn't like it, said Igor. He pushed his mug across the sticky bar. Same again. Polly took the new tankard and sniffed at it. Then she took a sip. Not bad, she said. At least it tastes like it's... The door pushed open, letting in the sounds of the storm. About two-thirds of a troll eased its way inside and then managed to get the rest of itself through. Polly was OK about trolls. She met them up in the woods sometimes, sitting among the trees or purposefully lumbering along the tracks on the way to whatever it was trolls did. They weren't friendly. They were resigned. The world's got humans in it. Live with it. They're not worth the indigestion. You can't kill them all. Step around them. Stepping on them doesn't work in the long term. Occasionally, a farmer would hire one to do some heavy work. Sometimes they turned up. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they'd turn up, lumber around a field pulling out tree stumps as if they were carrots, and then wander off without waiting to be paid. A lot of things humans did mystified trolls, and vice versa. Generally, they avoided one another. But she didn't often see trolls as trollish as this one. It looked like a boulder that had spent centuries in the damp pine forests. Lichen covered it. Stringy grey moss hung in curtains from its head and its chin. It had a bird's nest in one ear. It had a genuine troll club made from an uprooted sapling. It was almost a joke troll, except that no one would laugh. The root end of the sapling bumped across the floor as the troll, watched by the recruits and a horrified Corporal Strappy, trudged to the table. Gonna enlist, it said. Gonna do my bit. Gimme shillin'. You're a troll, Strappy burst out. No, no, none of that, Corporal, said Sergeant Jackram. Don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't ask. It's a troll, Sarge. It's got crags. There's grass growing under its fingernails. It's a troll. Right, said the sergeant. Enlist him. You want to fight with us? Strappy squeaked. Trolls had no sense of personal space, and a ton of what was, for practical purposes, a kind of rock, was looming right over the table. The troll analysed the question. The recruits stood in silence, mugs halfway to mouths. No, said the troll at last. Gonna fight, we're an army. God saves the... The troll paused and looked at the ceiling. Whatever it was seeking there didn't appear to be visible. Then it looked at its feet, which had grass growing on them. Then it looked at its free hand and moved its fingers as if counting something. Duchess, it said. It had been a long wait. The table creaked as the troll laid a hand on it, palm upwards. Gimme shilling. 
We've only got bits of paper, Corporal Strappy began. Sergeant Jackram jabbed an elbow into his ribs. Upon my oath, are you mad? he hissed. There's a ten-man bounty for enlisting a troll. With his other hand, he reached into his jacket pocket, pulled out a real silver shilling and placed it delicately in the huge hand. Welcome to your new life, friend. I'll just write your name down, shall I? What is it? The troll looked at the ceiling, feet, sergeant, wall and table. Polly saw its lips move. Carborundum, it volunteered. Yeah, probably, said the sergeant. Uh, how would you like to shave, uh, to cut off some of that hair, uh, moss? We've got a, uh, a sort of regulation. Wall, floor, ceiling, table, fingers, sergeant. No, said Carborundum. Right. Right, right, said the sergeant quickly. It's not a regulation as per such, actually. It's more of an advisory. Silly one, Tui, I've always thought so. Glad to have you with us, he added fervently. The troll licked the coin, which gleamed like a diamond in its hand. It actually did have grass growing under its fingernails too, Polly noticed. Then Carborundum trudged to the bar. The crowd parted instantly, because a troll never had to stand at the back of the press of bodies waving money and trying to catch the barman's eye. He broke the coin in two and dropped both halves on the bar top. Eyebrow swallowed. He looked as though he would have said, Are you sure? Except that this was not a question barman addressed to people weighing over half a tonne. Carborundum thought for a while and then said, Gimme drink. Eyebrow nodded, disappeared briefly into the room behind the bar, and came back holding a double-handed mug. Maledict sneezed. Polly's eyes watered. It was the, the kind of smell you sense with your teeth. The pub might make foul beer as a matter of course, but this was eye-stinging vinegar. Eyebrow dropped one half of the silver coin into it, and then took a copper penny out of the money drawer and held it over the fuming mug. The troll nodded. With just a hint of ceremony, like a cocktail waiter dropping the little umbrella into a double entendre, Eyebrow let the copper fall. More bubbles welled up. Igor watched with interest. Carborundum picked the mug up in two fingers of each shovel-like hand and swallowed the contents in one gulp. He stood stock still for a moment, then carefully put the mug back on the bar. "'You gentlemen might like to move back a bit,' murmured Eyebrow. "'What's going to happen?' said Polly. "'It takes them all differently,' said Eyebrow. "'Looks like this one's... no, there he goes.' With considerable style, Carborundum went over backwards. There was no sagging at the knees, no girly attempt to soften the fall. He just went from standing up, one hand out, to lying down, one hand up. He even rocked gently for some time after hitting the floor. "'Got no head for his drink,' said Eyebrow. "'Typical of the young bucks. Wants to play the big troll, come in here, order an electric floor-banger. Doesn't know how to handle it.' "'Is he going to come around?' said Maledict. "'No, that's it until dawn, I reckon,' said Eyebrow. "'Brain stops working.' 
Shouldn't affect him too much, then, said Corporal Strappy, stepping up. Right, you miserable lot. You're sleeping in the shed out the back, understand? Practically waterproof, hardly any rats. We're out of here at dawn. You're in the army now. Polly lay in the dark, on a bed of musty straw. There was no question of anyone getting undressed. The rain hammered on the roof and the wind blew through a crack under the door, despite Igor's efforts to stuff it with straw. There was some desultory conversation, during which Polly found out that she was sharing the dank shed with Tonka Halter, Shufty Manacle, Wazza Goom and Lofty Toot. Maledict and Igor didn't seem to have acquired repeatable nicknames. She'd become Ozza by general agreement. Slightly to Polly's surprise, the boy now known as Wazza had taken a small picture of the Duchess out of his pack and nervously hung it on an old nail. No one else said anything as he prayed to it. It was what you were supposed to do. They said the Duchess was dead. Polly had been washing up when she'd heard the men talking late one night, and it's a poor woman who can't eavesdrop while making a noise at the same time. Dead, they said, but the people up at Prince Marmaduke Piotr Albert Hans Josef Bernhard Wilhelmsberg weren't admitting it. That was cause what with there being no children, and with royalty marrying one another's cousins and grannies all the time, the ducal throne would go to the Prince Heinrich of Slovenia. There, can you believe it? That's why we never see her, right? And there hasn't been a new picture all these years. Makes you think, eh? Oh, they say she's been in mourning cause of the young duke, but that was more than seventy years ago. They say she was buried in secret and... At which point her father had stopped the speaker dead. There are some conversations where you don't even want people to remember you were in the same room. Dead or alive, the Duchess watched over you. The recruits tried to sleep. Occasionally someone belched or expelled wind noisily, and Polly responded with a few fake eructations of her own. That seemed to inspire greater effort on the part of the other sleepers, to the point where the roof rattled and dust fell down before everyone subsided. Once or twice she heard people stagger out into the windy darkness, in theory for the privy, but probably, given male impatience in these matters, to aim much closer to home. Once, coasting in and out of a troubled dream, she thought she heard someone sobbing. Taking care not to rustle too much, Polly pulled out the much-folded, much-read, much-stained last letter from her brother and read it by the light of the solitary, guttering candle. It had been opened and heavily mangled by the censors and bore the stamp of the duchy. It read, Dear all, we are in blank, which is blank with a blank big thing with knobs. On blank, we with blank, which is just as well because blank out of. I am keeping well. The food is blank. Blank will blank at the blank. But my mate, blanker, says not to worry, it'll all be over by blank, and we shall all have medals. Chins up, Paul. It was in a careful hand, the excessively clear and well-shaped writing of someone who had to think about every letter. She folded it up again. Paul had wanted medals because they were shiny. That had been almost a year ago, when any recruiting party that came past went away with the best part of a battalion, and there had been people waving them off with flags and music. Sometimes, now, smaller parties of men came back. The lucky ones were missing only one arm or one leg. There were no flags. 
She unfolded the other piece of paper. It was a pamphlet. It was headed, From the Mothers of Borogravia. The mothers of Borogravia were very definite about wanting to send their sons off to war against the Slovenian aggressor, and used a great many exclamation points to say so. And this was odd, because the mothers in the town had not seemed keen on the idea of their sons going off to war, and positively tried to drag them back. Several copies of the pamphlet seemed to have reached every home even so. It was very patriotic. That is, it talked about killing foreigners. She'd learned to read and write after a fashion because the inn was big and it was a business and things had to be tallied and recorded. Her mother had taught her to read, which was acceptable to Nuggan, and her father made sure that she learned how to write, which was not. A woman who could write was an abomination unto Nuggan, according to Father Jupe. Anything she wrote would by definition be a lie. But Polly had learned anyway because Paul hadn't, at least to the standard needed to run an inn as busy as the Duchess. He could read, if he could run his finger slowly along the lines, and he could write letters painfully, with a lot of care and heavy breathing, like a man assembling a piece of jewellery. He was big and kind and slow, and could lift beer kegs as though they were toys, but he wasn't a man at home with paperwork. Their father had hinted to Polly, very gently but very often, that Polly would need to be right behind him when the time came for him to run the Duchess. Left to himself, with no one to tell him what to do next, her brother just stood and watched birds. At Paul's insistence, she'd read the whole of From the Mothers of Borogravia to him, including the bits about heroes and there being no greater good than to die for your country. She wished, now, she hadn't done that. Paul did what he was told. Unfortunately, he believed what he was told, too. She put the papers away and dozed again, until her bladder woke her up. Oh, well, at least at this time of morning she'd have a clear run. She reached out for her pack and stepped as softly as she could out into the rain. It was mostly just coming off the trees now, which were roaring in the wind that blew up the valley. The moon was hidden in the clouds, but there was just enough light to make out the inn's buildings. A certain greyness suggested that what passed for dawn in Plune was on the way. She located the men's privy, which indeed stank of inaccuracy. A lot of planning and practice had gone into this moment. She was helped by the design of her breeches, which were the old-fashioned kind with generous buttoned trap doors, and also by the experiment she'd made very early in the mornings when she was doing the cleaning. In short... With care and attention to detail, she'd found that a woman could pee standing up. It certainly worked back home in the inn's privy, which had been designed and built with the certain expectation of the aimlessness of the customers. The wind shook the dank building. In the dark, she thought of Auntie Hattie, who'd gone a bit strange around her 60th birthday and persistently accused passing young men of looking up her dress. She was even worse after a glass of wine, and she had one joke. What does a man stand up to do, a woman sit down to do, and a dog lift its leg to do? And then, when everyone was too embarrassed to answer, she'd triumphantly shriek, Shake hands! and fall over. Auntie Hattie was an abomination all by herself. Polly buttoned up the breeches with a sense of exhilaration. She felt she'd crossed a bridge, a sensation that was helped by the realisation that she'd kept her feet dry. Someone said, Psst! It was just as well she'd already taken a leak. Panic instantly squeezed every muscle. Where were they hiding? 
This was just a rotten old shed. Oh, there were a few cubicles, but the smell alone suggested very strongly that the woods outside would be a much better proposition. Even on a wild night. Even with extra wolves. Yes? she quavered, and then cleared her throat and demanded, with a little more gruffness, Yes? You'd need these, whispered the voice. In the fetid gloom, she made out something rising over the top of the cubicle. She reached up nervously and touched softness. It was a bundle of wool. Her fingers explored it. A pair of socks, she said. Right, wear em, said the mystery voice hoarsely. Thank you, but I've brought several pairs, Polly began. There was a faint sigh. No, not on your feet. Shove em down the front of your trousers. What do you mean? Look, said the whisperer patiently. You don't bulge where you shouldn't bulge. That's good. But you don't bulge where you should bulge either. You know, lower down. Oh, er, I, but, I, I didn't think people noticed, said Polly, glowing with embarrassment. She had been spotted. But there was no hue and cry, no angry quotations from the Book of Nuggan. Someone was helping. Someone who had seen her. It's a funny thing, said the voice, but they notice what's missing more than they notice what's there. Just one pair, mark you. Don't get ambitious. Polly hesitated. Um, is it obvious? She said. No, that's why I gave you the socks. I meant that, that I'm not, that I'm not really, said the voice in the dark. You're pretty good. You come over as a frightened young lad trying to look big and brave. You might pick your nose a bit more often. Just a tip. Few things interest a young man more than the contents of his nostrils. Now, I've got a favour to ask you in return. I didn't ask you for one, Polly thought, quite annoyed at being taken for being a frightened young lad, when she was sure she'd come over as quite a cool, non-ruffled young lad. But she said calmly, What is it? Got any paper? Wordlessly, Polly pulled from the mothers of Borogravia out of her shirt and handed it up. She heard the sound of a match striking and a sulphurous smell that only improved the general conditions. Why, is this the escutcheon of Her Grace the Duchess I see in front of me? said the whisperer. Well, it won't be in front of me for long. Beat it, boy. Polly hurried out into the night, shocked, dazed, confused and almost asphyxiated, and made it to the shed door. But she'd barely shut it behind her and was blinking in the blackness when it was thrust open again and let in the wind, rain and Corporal Strappy. All right, all right, hands off. Well, you lot won't be able to find them and on with socks. Hap, 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 hi-ho, hap, hap. Bodies were suddenly springing up or falling over all around Polly. Their muscles must have been obeying the voice directly, because no brain could have got into gear that quickly. Corporal Strappy, in obedience to the law of non-commissioned officers, responded by making the confusion more confusing. Good grief, you lot of old women could shift better than you, he shouted with satisfaction as people flailed around looking for their coats and boots. Fall in, get shaved. Every man in the regiment to be clean-shaven by order. Get dressed. Was her? 
I've got my eye on you. Move, move, breakfast in five minutes. Last one there doesn't get a sausage. Oh, dearie me, what a bloody shower. The four lesser apocalyptical horsemen of panic, bewilderment, ignorance and shouting took control of the room to Corporal Strappy's obscene glee. Polly, though, ducked out the door, pulled a small tin mug out of her pack, dipped it into a water butt, balanced it on an old barrel behind the inn and started to shave. She'd practised this, too. The secret was in the old cutthroat razor that she'd carefully blunted. After that, it was all in the shaving brush and soap. Get a lot of lather on, shave a lot of lather off. And you'd had a shave, hadn't you? Must have done, sir. Feel how smooth the skin is. She was halfway through when a voice by her ear screamed, What do you think you're doing, private parts? It was just as well the blade was blunt. Perks, sir, she said, rubbing her nose. I'm shaving, sir. It's perks, sir. Sir? Sir? I'm not a sir, parts. I'm a bloody corporal, parts. That means you call me Corporal Parts. And are you shaving in an official regimental mug, Parts, what you have not been issued with, right? You a deserter, Parts? No, Corporal. A thief, then? No, Corporal. Then how come you got a bloody mug, Parts? Got it off a dead man, sir, Corporal. Strappy's voice, pitched into a scream in any case, became a screech of rage. You're a looter? No, Corporal, the soldier... had died almost in her arms on the floor of the inn. There had been half a dozen men in that party of returning heroes. They must have been trekking with grey-faced patience for days, making their way back to little villages in the mountains. Polly counted nine arms and ten legs between them, and ten eyes. But it was the apparently whole who were worse, in a way. They kept their stinking coats buttoned tight in lieu of bandages over whatever unspeakable mess lay beneath, and they had the smell of death about them. The inn's regulars made space for them and talked quietly, like people in a sacred place. Her father, not usually a man given to sentiment, quietly put a generous tot of brandy into each mug of ale and refused all payment. Then it turned out that they were carrying letters from soldiers still fighting, and one of them had brought the letter from Paul. He pushed it across the table to Polly as she served them stew, and then, with very little fuss, he died. End of CD 1